Tonight appears Morgan Uncensored. Russians flee the country in droves as Putin drafts his 300,000 reservists. They're worried, but how worried should we be about his nuclear threat? Truss and Biden clash over Northern Ireland, but could his very existence now be in question as Catholics outnumber Protestants for the first time? We'll debate that. And Britain's strictest headmistress is here live to give us a, t a lesson in teaching and in free speech. Live from London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Well, good evening from London. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. These are turbulent times for Britain. The death of our great Queen raised some big questions here about what it means to be British and what the future holds for the United Kingdom itself. Could the age of King Charles III see an independent Scotland, or perhaps even before that, a unified Ireland? Personally, I hope not. I like the United Kingdom as it is. But one thing's for sure. If either of these countries do redefine themselves, or they both do, they will do it by choice, in free and fair elections, with results that we have to respect, because we respect democracy here. I think Scottish independence would be a disaster, mostly for Scotland. But if they do vote to leave, I'll send them on their way and I'll wish them luck. Same would apply to Ireland. It would be their choice, and that's the beauty of democracy. Now, compare that to the fake Frankenstein democracy of Russia, a country where the dictator stuffs ballots to give his murderous regime a sham credibility, where government critics end up with Novichok in their underpants if they haven't already mysteriously fallen out of windows. Russia's now using this pathetic pretense of democracy to justify further genocide in Ukraine. This weekend, it's holding fake votes in Ukraine's occupied east, supposedly on whether the people there want to become formally part of Russia again. They don't. But we won't need to wait until results night for the outcome of this one. Putin will declare victory. The delusional leader will spew further lies about protecting the Russian people, and he'll again threaten the West with nuclear Armageddon. The Ukrainians made their choice when they became a sovereign democratic country. They chose to be independent. They chose President Zelensky in a landslide, and he's leading a heroic fight to protect that right to choose. NATO should be backing him and backing him hard until this fight for freedom and democracy is won. Well, joining me now is nuclear weapons expert Alex Wallerstein. He's also a nuclear historian. I'm also joined by commentator and lawyer Paula Roan Adrian, Talk TV international editor Isabel Oakeshott, and historian Neil Ferguson. So, a stellar lineup to kick off tonight's show. Um, let me start, if I can, with you, Alex uh, Wallerstein, because a lot of talk at the moment about nuclear weapons, and yet very few of us know much about nuclear weapons. We know about Nagasaki and Hiroshima and how devastating they were, but thank God we've not had any repetition since. However, many experts believe we are now on the precipice of potentially having to face up to some kind of nuclear weapon being used by Vladimir Putin perhaps of the tactical variety. I don't know what that means in reality. Can you tell us, what is a tactical nuclear weapon? How big is it? How powerful is it? How likely is it that Vladimir Putin may use one? Thanks so much, Piers. I'm happy to be here. A tactical nuclear weapon uh, tells you less about how big the weapon is and more about what it would be intended to be used against. So a tactical nuclear weapon is something like a battlefield nuclear weapon as opposed to a strategic nuclear weapon which might be aimed at a city or a silo or so on. They tend to be smaller in terms of their explosive output. Uh, they, but, but smaller here is all very relative. So the weapon dropped on Hiroshima in 1945 
uh, that could be a tactical nuclear weapon uh, in the today or in the Cold War if you used it against tanks. And they can range in how explosive they are down to levels that are almost like the biggest conventional explosives we have. They're still nuclear weapons, but they're generally much smaller than the ones that would be aimed at sort of a city, but they're still pretty powerful. The whole point of nuclear weapons in a modern society is supposedly for deterrent. Uh, the theory being that big superpowers build up a nuclear arsenal and it deters anybody from using nuclear weapons because everyone gets vaporized. How likely is it, do you think, that somebody like Putin, cornered, possibly losing now in this, in this war that he has to win, that he may resort to this? And what would be the repercussions? I mean, President Biden has said he would respond but doesn't want to say how he would respond. What, what in reality would happen, do you think? Uh, we don't know, and I don't think President Biden knows, and I don't think Putin knows. And keeping that uncertainty is partially what uh, is believed to maintain the state of deterrence, in the sense that it might be a little response, it might be a bigger response. Uh, keeping him uncertain about what the outcome would be is a deliberate strategy so that it's hard for him to calculate what might be in his interests and that he might hope, uh, whatever he might hope he might get out of it, uh, he probably would have to balance against what other consequences would come. So the answer is nobody really knows, and there probably isn't a doctrine written somewhere that says, if he does X, we do Y. Uh, it's the sort of thing that the president or Putin would have to decide under the circumstances. And that, you know, makes people a little uncomfortable to, to put it into the decision of a single human being. The other question, I mean, just on the numbers, Russia has the highest number of nuclear warheads, just under 6,000. America has just under 5,500. Then China, France and the UK all have between 350 and 225. Uh, obviously, you know, one or two of these things can cause unbelievable mayhem and damage and destruction to, uh, to people and to, and to infrastructure. But how many of Russia's nuclear weapons do we think would be usable? I mean, what, what actually is the reality of Putin's nuclear arsenal? So the New START Treaty says that the United States and Russia each agree to have no more than 1,550 warheads that are strategically used, again, aimed at other warheads or aimed at military bases or aimed at cities or industry and so on. It says nothing about tactical nuclear weapons, so they might have many of those. There's some estimates on how many they have. But uh, so that sort of puts some limits on those big numbers. In terms of how many would actually work, in terms of how many would reach their target, how many could come into play, uh, we don't really know. Uh, you could imagine a situation in which somebody like Putin wanted to use one small nuclear weapon with the hope of avoiding larger escalation or larger war. You could also imagine a situation in which they decided to launch everything in a full-scale attack. Um, in that actually, latter I can't situation... Imagine. I mean, that second part, just to interrupt you, I, I actually can't <laughs> sure. imagine that because the idea of a country like Russia unleashing hundreds of nuclear weapons, which would lead to the almost inevitable destruction of the entire planet very quickly, is actually unimaginable to most of us. I think uh, to war planners, it's much more imaginable. Uh, I steep myself in the historical literature on this, and they've imagined it. They've worked out how it would work. They've worked out what it would be, how many they think would die. 
But of course, they've fought as many nuclear wars as you and I have. So who knows how much of that would play out in practice? Right. Uh, Alice Wellesley, I mean, fascinating, slightly terrifying, I have to say, but I appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. Uh, let me go to Neil Ferguson. No problem. Ne Thank you. Neil, you're a historian like Alex. In your estimation, where are we here? Are we closer to nuclear conflict than the world has ever been, perhaps even closer than we were in the Cuban Missile Crisis? No. Uh, and this is, uh, at this point, a much less dangerous situation than the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Remember, uh, in uh, 1962, uh, it was the United States and the Soviet Union uh, that were on the brink of conflict after uh, Khrushchev uh, stationed missiles on uh, Cuba, just off the uh, US coast. And it was only uh, by sheer good luck that the war we might have called World War III didn't break out. Uh, actually, an order was given by a Soviet submarine commander to fire a nuclear torpedo at some US surface ships. Luckily, he had a superior officer on board who overruled him. And so we avoided World War III, but it was an extraordinarily dangerous moment, clearly the most dangerous moment of the Cold War. This is different, and I'll try and explain why. First of all, uh, the Russian Federation is not the Soviet Union. It turns out that its conventional army can't even defeat Ukraine, never mind NATO. And the only reason that Putin is talking about tactical nuclear weapons is because he knows he's losing this conventional war. Uh, secondly, if you look carefully at what he's saying, actually, it's he, he who is using the nukes as a deterrent. He's directing his rhetoric at NATO, at the US, and its allies, not at Ukraine. He's not saying that if Ukraine keeps on winning, he'll use a tactical nuke against Ukrainian forces. I think what he's saying, if one reads it carefully, is that he might use a nuclear weapon if NATO were to escalate its involvement in the war. In fact, in the speech he just gave uh, this week, it, it sounded as if he was saying that NATO had threatened Russia with nukes, which I must have missed. Maybe that was only available on RT. So this is not the Cuban Missile Crisis. These are the bluffing, blustering statements of a, a dictator who is losing the small war that he thought would be over in days. And time is running out for Vladimir Putin. I don't think, to just make one final point, Piers, even if he gave the order uh, to launch or drop a nuclear uh, weapon, that it would be carried out. Right. And that's a really important point to remember. He doesn't get to deliver it personally. He'd need the order to be carried out. Where, where do you think this goes then? I interviewed Jordan Peterson yesterday at length, and as part of that, he was pretty doom-laden, actually, about what he thought was going to happen. He just couldn't see a situation that didn't end with Putin having some kind of victory and Ukraine having to cede something to Putin. Um, I mean, there is a scenario I could see here in relation to Putin's speech where he's coming up with all these fake referenda at the weekend in which he's going to try and presumably declare, you know, electoral victory in these fake referenda, justifying what he's doing. If Ukraine was to then attack those areas, which have now supposedly democratically declared themselves part of Russia, would he then use that as the excuse for them attacking Russian land. I mean, that seems to me a scenario that he could react to. Well, that might be the rationale here. Uh, the problem is that even as he's trying to organize these uh, sham referenda, 
uh, he's actually losing control of the territory in question. It's not like the Ukrainians have stopped their offensive operations. They're ongoing, and I think they will press on, uh, taking advantage uh, of the obvious weakness and demoralization of the Russian army. I don't agree with uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, gloomy take. I was just in Kiev about 10 days ago and met with President Zelensky uh, at a time when uh, Ukraine was winning some remarkable victories uh, uh, east of Kharkiv. And I think that the Ukrainians have uh, a decent chance of continuing uh, to gain ground because Russia's army is a demoralized colonial force most of its troops drawn from the back of beyond uh, of the Russian, um, uh, Russian Federation. I nearly said empire, that's how Putin thinks of it. And they've suffered amazingly heavy casualties, Piers. If you look at the yeah. death rates that we can figure out, maybe something like a quarter of the initial invading force is now dead. So I think there's a decent chance uh, that Ukraine can press its advantage uh, in the coming weeks and months. That's not going to bring peace because Putin's not about to admit defeat mm. and accept that his so-called military operations an epic fail. It seems to me that the, the war itself will continue, but the level of fighting will have to diminish. Both sides simply can't keep this up. Uh, winter is, of course, approaching. And my est estimate is that this will play out a little bit like the Korean War did. That's to say the really kinetic phase will give way to a somewhat protracted stalemate. There'll never be a peace agreement because the two sides will never agree, but there'll be something like an armistice maybe sometime next year. And, and that will be a moral victory uh, for Ukraine, uh, even if it's not uh, acknowledged officially in a peace treaty. Right. Let's bring in, you've been very patient, thank you very much, but you were both slightly recoiling at some of the stuff we've been talking about here because we, you know, having to even think about a nuclear yeah. war mm. is actually pretty scary. I mean, yes. I definitely prefer Niall Ferguson's analysis yes. to yes. the nuclear weapons expert. Yes. Um, but I'm not sure I necessarily am that convinced by his analysis. Because essentially what he's saying, and, you know, he is very eminent, and I don't, uh, for a minute, pretend that I know better than him. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I, I just don't think that President Putin is going to be willing to contemplate something that is perceived around the world to be a failure. And yeah. that is the problem. Yeah. And this whole idea that, um, you know, he would have to be, uh, he would need to use a NATO aggression as an excuse. Well, he invents NATO aggression as an excuse the whole time. That was it's why all, he invaded Ukraine. It's all a complete with. fiction. And if we revert, as, as Professor Ferguson says, to a kind of long war of attrition. Essentially, that's only going back to what was happening in Ukraine back in, well, mm. since 2013, 14, 14 ever yes. since then. Mm. I don't think he's going to be satisfied with that position. Well, I mean, there's a big debate, isn't there, about how committed we should be as a country, like all countries yeah. in Europe and America and so on. How much should we be invested in Ukraine's victory? Mm. To me, I mean, I like Neil Ferguson, I've been to Ukraine in the last two months. We've both been on the same train, actually. I'll talk to Neil in a moment about that. Um, we've been there, we've met Zelensky. He's a very impressive character. He could have disappeared from the city, but he stayed. Mm. Um, he's a real inspirational leader. I got the feeling they don't want to give an inch. No. An no. inch to Putin. They, Zelensky, he's an impressive, strong warrior. More mm. than just a leader. He is a warrior leading his army into battle, and he is not going to retreat. And do we have a moral duty to give him as much firepower as we can to win this battle, which I think we do, because to me it's a battle not just about Ukraine's democracy, 
It's a battle for European democracy, for the world's democracy. And if we don't fight for that, what are we fighting for? Absolutely. And I I saw a a survey recently where it did say that um, apparently the public would now prefer the government to focus on the cost of living crisis as opposed to what's happening in Ukraine. And we can understand, of course, we can understand that because the cost of living crisis is an immediate concern. But when we understand why part of the reason that we have a cost of living crisis mm. is because of what's happening in Ukraine. We can do nothing but support that. Well, I think, I mean, look, let's bring back Neil Ferguson on this, because to me, this is the crucial link, really, between the two things, is that a lot of the energy crisis issues we have in the UK right now are driven by this war in Ukraine. So for, if for no other reason than national self-economic interest, this is something that we need to see won. Uh, because otherwise, Putin will continue to control energy through Europe in a very nefarious manner. Well, I think, Piers, the days when Europe uh, relied on uh, Russian natural gas and oil are coming to an end, and I don't think they'll uh, return anytime soon. Uh, What's happening right now is an irreversible shift away uh, from Russian gas and oil. Uh, And once uh, Europe and the UK have got through the coming winter, it's not like we'll be going rushing back to Moscow to strike new deals. Uh, Putin's blunder has isolated him Uh, from the West in a way that will be extremely difficult uh, to change. He's now going to be selling his gas and oil at a discount to the likes of of China. Uh, I think the the question is both a moral one. I agree with you, Piers. Uh, We're fighting, uh, supporting here a fight for democracy and self-determination. But there is also a matter of of national self-interest. Russia has been a threat, not only to Ukraine, uh, but to the UK. Its uh, government has carried out uh, assassinations on British soil. uh, And anything that weakens the regime of Vladimir Putin uh, is devoutly to be wished for and supported. And there is a real and, I think, uh, extremely exciting opportunity here uh, to humble uh, the Russian Federation uh, and Vladimir Putin. Uh, and this, I think, will be of great benefit, not only uh, to the UK, uh, but also to the European Union, which, of course, allowed itself to become disastrously dependent yeah. uh, on Russian natural gas. So I think there are very strong moral and practical reasons for supporting uh, this war effort. And notice, peers, the UK is punching well above its weight at this point. Mm. Its support uh, exceeds the support of many major European countries, yes. Uh, In fact, the UK is really in many ways uh, second only uh, to the US in its commitment, not only its financial and economic commitment, but its commitment in training Ukrainian forces. It's not just Zelensky who's the warrior here. No, and I'm completely in favour of what Boris Johnson started and Liz Truss is is going to continue. Just before we let this go and move on to, to other stuff, you just went, I read your Spectator diary, you just went to... Kiev to see President Zelensky. You went on the same night train that I took, this 12-hour train right through Ukraine. Uh, They put the blinds down and tell you not to put any lights on, which is quite an interesting conversation at the start of a 12-hour journey. Um, How did you find it? How did you find the people there? I I detected a real sense of stoic resilience and determination driven by Zelensky himself. He basically motivated the people to believe they can win this war. That's right, Piers. And to see the nation in arms as Ukraine is today is deeply impressive. Zelensky deservedly gets a lot of media coverage, uh, but Ukraine wouldn't still be in this war, wouldn't in fact be winning it if it weren't for the fact that the people have come together 
uh, both civilians and the military in a way that very few of us who know Ukraine uh, expected or thought possible. That's the impressive thing. It's not just that Zelensky is a charismatic leader. It's the fact that the Ukrainian people have united and are mm. absolutely resolved to drive the Russians out of their territory. Indeed, sentiment has become so positive uh, in recent weeks that they're now talking about retaking Crimea, retaking the land that was lost yeah. back in 2014. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope they do. Uh, let's take a short break. But before we do that, I just want to just um, say that tomorrow night, we're going to re-air my hour-long special interview with President Zelensky and his First Lady, Elena Zelensky, which we ran in, in July. I did it in July. But I think it's been no, more relevant now than ever, perhaps. Here's a little clip of, as to why I think that. Do you believe you can win this war? Yes. No question. I don't only believe it, I know it will happen. We will win. It's a fascinating interview. If you didn't see it, we're going to air it in full tomorrow night here on Piers Morgan Uncensored at 8 o'clock. Let's take a short break. We'll be back to talk about the future of Britain, the United Kingdom. For the first time, more Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. What does that mean for us? We'll debate that next. Welcome back to Piers Morgan Uncensored. If you're wondering what Boris Johnson's up to these days, well, he's doing this. Thanks also, of course, to the inspirational leadership of, of Vladimir Putin, uh, uh, the inspirational leadership of uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, forgive me. Thanks, Boris. Good to hear from you again. Uh, well, I've got my, my pack with me again. Let's talk about the future of this country now, right. because a lot of challenges, but one of the big challenges is the potential, certainly in the reign of King Charles III, for a referendum both in Scotland and potentially in Ireland now. With this revelation, there are now more Catholics than there are Protestants. Sinn Féin is the dominant party. Things are moving quite fast in Ireland, and you could see a situation where they have a referendum on a united Ireland before Scotland has another referendum. But if they did, I don't actually think that those separatists, those that want to uh, do that, would actually succeed. I thought that the more interesting statistics, actually, if you read down those census answers, were the number of uh, those who answered about their identity. Mm. Uh, over 30% felt British. But that's way um, down on what and it was. At, well, that number's But falling. if you add that to those that felt Northern Irish, yeah. you get over 50%. Yeah, but the numbers so are falling on that British identity. But if, if, you're, if you're determined to find a negative and a divisive spin on it, yeah. yes. But actually, overall, you've still got the majority of people very strongly identifying either as British or Northern Irish. That doesn't say to me that that is the ground that is needed to lead to the breakup of the. United Paula, what do you feel about this? I take a slightly different view because for me, I think the shift is going to come from the youth, absolutely. And I think when we look at the youth and we look at their response in the media, they don't identify as Catholic or Protestant. It's not simply about religious politics anymore. It's about who am I and what do I want for the future? Mm. And I suspect that what they want for the future is a unified country to be able to say to the world, this is who we are and this is who we are together yeah. as one. Neil Ferguson, you're a historian. Um, are we, we've seen massive history unfurling in the last week with a new monarch in this country, the first in our lifetime. Is it likely in King Charles III's reign that we might see a united Ireland and an independent Scotland, do you think? 
It's not inconceivable, Piers, but I wouldn't say it was very likely. I agree with uh, Isabel's point. If one looks carefully, there doesn't seem to be an enormous yearning uh, for Irish uh, reunification. And it would be reunification. It's only a century since the partition uh, that created Northern Ireland as a separate entity uh, from the Republic. Uh, I don't think that's uh, really a, a key issue, uh, though there are all kinds of problems that exist, uh, largely as a result uh, of the way the Brexit uh, deal was done by Boris Johnson. Mm. Northern Ireland in an anomalous situation inside the single market, unlike the rest of the UK. I think that's one reason that this issue is even being uh, discussed. And so there's something to be resolved there. But that's the pressing issue, not the reunification of Ireland, which okay. I think is some way off. As for Scotland, then I can speak with more authority yes. on that as a Scotsman. I think we'll look back and say that Nicola Sturgeon's best shot at independence was in 2014, and that it's very, very hard indeed for the SNP now to argue that Scotland's problems are somehow to do with being in the United Kingdom, because the yeah. SNP runs Scotland, pretty much every aspect of its domestic policy. And the fact that it's running it very badly yeah. is gradually <laughs> dawning on voters. And that's the thing to watch. Well, there's a bigger existential threat uh, than any of this, as far as I'm concerned, and it's this. Barbara Broccoli, who runs the 007 James Bond franchise, has apparently now come out and said Bond is evolving as men are evolving, and that the next actor to play the role will continue the work of Daniel Craig, who cracked Bond open emotionally. They want more bigger roles for women and a more sensitive 007. I'm not against bigger roles for women, although I do think get your own spies. Uh, <laughs> but when it comes to a sensitive James Bond, we Isabel, don't want it, do I we? Want we, it. we? We agree on this. It. We absolutely what? You, you what? don't want it. <laughs> we absolutely want it. Well, you want some weeping, wailing, we, we want, whining, victim we want playing a spy James Bond. who has not only IQ but EQ. No, we don't. No, we don't. And, oh, come on. And I don't even think you so believe important. that. No it's woman so wants a weak, whiny, weeping no. bond, do they, Isabel? Seriously, no. I think the next movie will have to be called End of Days. <laughs> yes. It will be End of Days. And by the way, no one's going to go and see it if it's all working. We want James Bond in. to be a steely eyed dealer of death, right? A hard drinker, a hard smoker, and a serial womanizer yes. who so has no emotional valve whatsoever. He doesn't care. That's the whole point. We. And, and shall I tell you why, on a serious note, why we don't want that? Because we know how high the male suicide rate is. That's got nothing on, to do on, with on, James on Bond. On a serious note. Oh, no, you can't no. blame and that so on James Bond. What we want... We're not blaming it on James Bond. What we're saying is, great, James Bond is now turning into a real human Let being. me bring in What's Neil Ferguson on this, because you are a historian. Did, I mean, this, to me, is almost the biggest threat facing civilization as we know it. <laughs> An oversensitive James Bond. It's a, it's a terrifying prospect, uh, <laughs> to say nothing of the metamorphosis of Doctor Who. Uh, look, I'm a Sean Connery fan. I, I even had the privilege of getting to know Sean Connery, and I, I regard Daniel Craig as slightly effete by the standards of, of Connery. <laughs> so it's been all downhill since Sean hung up his toupee. <laughs> I think it has. Listen, if Barbara Broccoli's watching, and I have been pitching myself as the next bomb because... <laughs> Pierce Brosnan, Piers Morgan. I mean, it's not a massive leap, as I put it to her. And I do think it's time Bond became slightly older, a little bit greyer, a little bit wiser, and there's no-one less emotional than me. So, I think, job done. Come this way, Barbara. Um, stay with they... me, panel. Neil Ferguson, thank you very much. Brilliant to have you on the programme. Really enjoyed your analysis. Thanks, thank you very much indeed.
Well, coming up, my interview with psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson airs next week and is riveting. One person who met him before I did uh, in Britain was the strictest head teacher in the country, the tiger headmistress, who is praised and vilified in equal measure. I'm just not quite sure why she ever gets vilified. We're going to be talking to Catherine Burblesing after the break. She'll be live and unleashed. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome back to Piers Morgan Sense. For those who think cancel culture is real, no further than Britain's strictest headmistress, Catherine Burblesing. She runs the Michaela Community School in a deprived part of North London. The school focuses on discipline and manners. It's called boot camp discipline. Detentions given for lateness, for eye-rolling, for tutting, for forgetting to bring in a pen. Quite right, too, you might think. But not everyone shares that. You've said to me you really want to be at this school. You've said to me that you understand why the rules are here and why you need to behave yourself. I can't fix this. Mr. Bullock can't fix it. Who's going to fix it? Me, miss. You're the only one who can fix it. Your mum and dad be so disappointed. Well, Catherine Burblesing, I'm done. Thank you for coming in. It's great to, to have you on the show. Um, you've been at the centre of news again because you invited Jordan Peterson, who I interviewed yesterday, and we're running it in full next week. But we're going to run in a moment, or in a few minutes, a little bit more of that interview about you and the visit, actually, to the school, which led to you having people report you to the police for hate crimes simply for allowing Jordan Peterson to come to your school which says everything you need to know about the absurdity of modern society and cancel culture. We'll come to that part of this in a moment. First of all, you're the tiger headmistress. What does that mean? What is your teaching style, if you were to define it simply? Well, we believe that the adults should be the authority in the room. Parents and teachers uh, should be in charge. Um, and that means leading the learning. 
It means desks being in rows and the children looking to the teacher who, who leads the way. Um, it means high standards of discipline. So people think, oh, you know, I must hate children because um, I, and then I must walk down the corridors with whips and chains. When, when actually, you know, I'm in school every morning at 6.45 and I don't do that because I hate them, it's because I love them. Mm. And I know what they need to be able to succeed. They don't need phones. No, well, and, and that's another thing. So we wouldn't allow them phones. But in fact, we go more than just, we don't just ban them in school. We strongly encourage parents not to give their children smartphones at all. Mm. You can give your child a brick phone. Uh, you can still ring them. You can still text them. But they're not getting unsupervised access to the internet. Uh, so you, yeah. pra you practice tough love teaching, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Why has it attracted any controversy? I mean, your results are outstanding. Yes. You take a lot of very deprived kids yes. who don't have any privilege in their lives. Yes. You just had 98% pass rate in your GCSEs, I think. Yes. Many at A-star level. Yes. So you're doing an amazing job yes. helping these kids achieve their potential. And yet there are people out there who will be listening to this now going, this sounds horrible, terrible, this woman's evil. Yeah. How have we got to this place? Well, I, I think people think it's mean to give children detentions and to discipline them. But the thing is, is that if you don't do that, then the children will just spin out of control. Yes. And I'll tell you what's mean. It's living your life uh, functionally enumerate and functionally illiterate. And there are lots of people who end up doing that because school didn't do the right job by them and hold their standards high for them. Are too many schools just too soft? And is the softness coming from being terrified of this new culture, again, where people say, if you do anything to do with discipline, then you're bullying, you're racist, whatever the excuse they can think of to play the victim, they play it hard and teachers just get scared. They don't want to have to operate in that environment. Yeah, and I don't think that they're just scared. I think all of our society really uh, encourages us to think like this. So in order for a head teacher to, to do things properly, in my view, you've got to be quite brave to stand up to the mob. I mean, for instance, I invited Jordan Peterson to come and just walk around the school and see the school, just as we have 600 other visitors who come and see the school. Of all different year. persuasions, politically and exactly. socially and everything else. Exactly. Because you believe, presumably, that actually the best education is to have a wide range of different people with different views. Yeah. But you know this is completely going out of fashion in our education system. Yeah, that's Universities right. now, they, if you deviate even one iota to the right, you get no platform, you get shamed, there are protests going on. Yeah. This kind of woke cancel culture is out of control. Yeah, and so that's why, as a head teacher, you've got to be quite brave. And that's, I think it's a little unreasonable in a way to ask that of, of ordinary people who are just trying to do a job. Teachers, my own teachers, for instance, I have to really support them emotionally because they come to work at our school and their friends question their decision to do that. They wonder what they're doing. Um, are they actually, do they not know who they really are? Um, and, and I have to support my teachers and they say, well, how can I convince my friends that I'm not a bad person? I mean... But this is completely <laughs> insane. I know. <laughs> You're having to, to comfort your staff who are working in a highly driven, motivated environment which is successful with happy successful children coming out better than they go in and you're having to help your staff because they're being treated so badly by their own friendship groups I because know. they're working in this environment
I it's, know. it's nuts. I know. And the thing is, is that those people say that they want to help deprived children. And here we are transforming mm. their lives. And yet they're highly critical. And there's some of them who would really like to see us shut down. We're going to take a short break. Come back. We're going to play the clip uh, from my interview with Jordan Peterson, where he talks about his visit to see you at your school, a visit that, as I say, it led to people reporting Catherine to the police for a hate crime just by having Jordan Peterson attend the school. This is insane, and we'll talk about it after the break. Well, welcome back. I'm still here with my expert panel and Catherine Burblesing, Britain's strictest tiger mistress, head teacher. It's a great title. I love that. Um, I gave it to you. Um, but let's, <laughs> let's play a little clip from my interview with Jordan Peterson, which airs in full next Tuesday, in which he talks about his visit to Catherine's school and this absurd development when it all got reported to the police. You went to a school, really interesting school, the Michaela Community School in North London run by this fascinating head teacher, Catherine Burblesing, uh, who runs a pretty tough school but has amazing results at this school. And as a result of you going, she got bombarded with yep. hate from people. And she took it on head on, actually, and went, yep. I'm sorry, we're going to keep inviting people with all different views, all different types of people. And that's going to include people like Jordan Peters. And she owned it and she was proud yep. Yep. that you went to her school. Tell me about that visit. Well, what do you think of her as well? Well, people think of her school as tough and that she's this dragon lady. And that isn't what I saw. What I saw was that she was playing a very sophisticated game with her students. And games have rules. And if you don't enforce the rules, then the game doesn't play properly. And every game has a referee because someone has to enforce the rules. And She's a very, very sophisticated referee, and she's playing an unbelievably sophisticated game. And the students are so alert and on target. Their attention is so well regulated by themselves. Like, for example, when we walked into her classrooms, we walked into about seven, we were led around by three relatively small kids who were very articulate and together and attentive and polite and focused. When we walked into her classes, the students didn't turn their eyes away from their teacher to look at us. There was no buzz of conversation. They were just focused on their teacher. And their teacher was focused too. It's like we could walk in and the whole thing just continued around us. And that was really something to see. And fast-paced, man. The teachers were spitting out mm. information as fast as I've ever heard anyone spit out information. And the students were reacting like... Just like, a, just like it was choreographed. And the truth is, it yeah. works. I mean, recently, this school... Yeah, well, that's annoying. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's annoying for those who immediately howl, this is disgusting, these poor kids, and so oh, on. Oh, yeah, those um, poor kids. 80% of his students achieve 4-plus C or more in their GCSEs, a very yeah. good results, despite being non-selective. Right, um, that's a big deal. A, a huge deal. And yet she gets castigated for it, which yeah. says to me that my sort of gut feeling that we've just gone a bit soft... In our well, it's annoying when you help out the victims because then there's no one to be, like, narcissistically compassionate about. Mm. So, and that's certainly the situation she's in. Yeah, it's quite amazing that she's managed this with, with kids who are a non-selected sample. And I asked her, you know, well, how many kids do you have to expel, let's mm. say, for serious misbehavior? And she said, it's only been a tiny handful. And I said, well, how many kids can't adjust to the more rigorous pace? And she said, well, they, they can all adjust. And that's what I saw. I mean... I never, saw, I never saw a bunch of children 
a group of children that were more focused and alert than I saw at that school. And it was really and yet, heart rending by, in some sense. And yet by you going there, they, people actually reported her to the police for a hate crime. Yeah, well... Just by your presence in that school. That's the problem with hate crime legislation. It's like, who defines hate? And I know the answer to that. Who defines hate? Mm. The people you least want to. So, you know, you want hate crime legislation? You just better keep in mind who's going to define what constitutes hate. And then you think about the people you're enabling, these rat finks, these people who didn't learn not to uh, tattletale on their peers when they were children, who run to totalitarian authority to wield their resentful power. Now that's all part of the legal code. It's like, well, we'll see where that goes. Well, we know where it goes. It goes so that, you know, demented, half-wit, resentful narcissists can rat out Kate Herbelsing to the police. Yes. Yeah, well, that's not good. Not at all. And who knows where it'll end up. Well, it's not good. Uh, Paula, what's your view of this? The, the Tiger headmistress is here. Yes. Do you agree with the tough love strategy of this school? I, I don't see the word love in that title. I see tough, but I don't see the word love. Uh, and what I wonder is whether you have changed the physical cane into an emotional cane. Because what I am seeing is children who are being taught through fear. Um, there are children who are being taught to fear uh, the authority. They're not being told, as a panda mum, I think is the, the opposite, <laughs> would tell their child, about being creative, about exploring, about understanding, about investigating, about challenging okay. authority. Yes, well, hang on, it's Catherine, important respond to challenge to the, authority. Respond to that specific charge. In order for children to be creative or to think outside the box about something, they need to know about it first. And that means they need somebody taking charge and teaching them. And when you teach them, and when you show up every day at 6.45 in the morning, as many of my teachers do, you don't do it because you dislike the children, you do it because you love them. And if you came to our school, you say you're seeing this stuff, but you haven't been to our school. Right. If you come to our school and go through the corridors, as Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. did, and as 600 other visitors do every year, come to our school, most of them teachers from all around the world and certainly across this country, they come because they cannot believe what they're seeing. Not just how loved right. the children are, how resilient and how determined and how ambitious they are, that these are ordinary children from the inner city, and yet they defy the odds. And we talk about wanting social mobility. This is how you get it. All right, right. Isabel. I mean, you, you talk about fear, but actually at the heart of this is actually respect. Respect for the, the fear setting. of respect. Res no, respecting the setting that you're in, respecting that your teachers are there to give you uh, the, the tools that you need to do well. Um, you say that there's no love there, but what better love can you give children than allowing them to maximise their full potential? And what is wrong, what is wrong with discipline, it, it, by the way? What is wrong with discipline? Tough love. There is no such thing as tough love. Yes, there is. Of course there is. It's an excuse. Do you have children? I do. I do. You don't not show that, them Not that love. that wouldn't make me an expert to comment on no, it. No, actually, I'm sorry. So, I actually think you do you know, need to have children to comment on whether tough love is All right, well, she has children, but... Sorry, tough love absolutely exists. Tough love is where you love your kids but you believe in discipline and you believe in, in making them respect things like school, things like teachers. You, they don't have woeful disrespect for any plank of society well, that's that has authority. That's to suggest that a parent um, doesn't believe in discipline but has to be tough. 
Discipline is something very different. Discipline can be effective when you respect your child. Discipline well, does well, not you right, respect Catherine. them enough to want to make sure to make you want to make them successful. Tough love is loving them enough to hold the line. It's much easier to just try and be friends with them. And not loving it's them so easier. much that actually you forget about discipline. You let them walk all over you. They get no boundaries, no respect. They get what they want and become entitled little brats, which is what happens to a lot of kids these days because they get covered in in, in cotton wool at every stage of their education, at weak schools run by weak head teachers, and finally we get a head teacher who yeah. understands this from personal experience and believes that actually tough love is the right way to educate our kids. And I say hallelujah. Yeah. And I'm, well, I'm starting that you I don't. Just wonder, I just wonder um, what these children will be like as adults. I think because well, you, you, want want them. What, you can meet what them at I various Russell Group... If you go to various Russell Group universities, be... you will see them. That's right. where our kids are, who started with us in 2014. They're articulate, they're kind, they're grateful, they're mm. decent people. They're the kinds of people... The thing I'm most proud of is not our results. It's the kinds of people Rounded, our children end up confident. being, the adults. And you see, Paula, if you don't mind me saying, it seems to me you have reached these conclusions without being there, without actually witnessing this yourself, from stuff you've read. Oh, absolutely. And on Twitter, you're, a, uh, to some people, the devil, for reasons <laughs> that completely baffle me, right? So I would say uh, you absolutely. have to have a bit more of an open mind about what they're really doing there. You're going to well, go we, and see we, we, you we very well. I would love to. I would love to. And, and, have and I'll, bring my, I'll bring my three children as well. OK, good. I mean, when we... We have to comment on what we we see in here. So I've never been to your school. Of course I haven't. And I can only comment on what I understand the definition of a tiger mum is. And well, what we know about... When I speak now, do I sound like I hate children? But I haven't said that you hate children. That's you not said, my suggestion. You said she doesn't you love said them. there's no love. Well, no, you think no. I what I said was there's to... no such thing as tough love. No, you also you said there's no love for these kids. We need to be careful. There's no such thing as tough love. And that just that saying alone, it's an oxymoron. You can't have... Toughness of course and you can. love. Of course you, you have can. Is love and respect. Oh please! Now that can flow with discipline, absolutely, but you can't get. But the all time. discipline is a form of toughness. I isn't think it? you're making no. a fundamental discipline, yes. error discipline, here. Discipline you're... is a form of protecting your child, but allowing them what? to learn but and sometimes, grow so look, in a I've safe got, environment. I have four kids, and sometimes they range from 29 to 10. And sometimes you've got to show tough love. You've got to be tough on your you're kids. Not there to be you their don't friend. give them what they want. No. You punish no. them if I they do something you. terrible. You're not right? your friend. They're, they're, you're not their friend. You're their parent. Actually, you could be, you could be friends with your. I'm friends with my children, but I. But I'm their parent. I'm not their buddy. I agree with you. I'm their yes. parent, but I believe absolutely in tough love. I would have loved when... them to go. They actually, they went to very good schools, all of them. So I don't criticise where they've been. You but I have, would have had no compulsion to send them to your school. Yeah. Absolutely. If you're not tough with them, then you just let them do whatever they want. And that's when they're not safe. That's when they're in danger. It's for us as adults. When children push, yeah. we push back. Yeah. And if we don't do that, we let them down. And what, and what you don't do, it seems to me, if you don't do this, you, you don't prepare them for the real world. The real world is tough. Right. It's a hard Absolutely. place. Mm. It's full of knocks. It's, it's really tough out there, particularly now for young people coming out of school and universities. Probably never been tougher, actually, in my lifetime. And they've got to be properly prepared. And how, mentally, how physically can they prepared. Do that? How can they challenge authority in your school? We have 40 seconds. Catherine, how yeah. can you prepare kids for the big, bad adult world? Well, you teach them lots. You make sure that they know how to read, write and add up and all that stuff. That can only be done in a classroom where there's some quiet, where you can hear the teacher teaching and where you can be inspired to want to learn. And so that, and as Jordan Peterson said, 
You know, they were regulating themselves. You build those habits into them bit by bit. And at the end, we talk about being top of the pyramid. It's just who you are. And if you discipline kids for not having a pen, would you have disciplined King Charles III for his <laughs> outburst about his pen leaking? Definitely. Yeah, I think that would have given him a deal. Good! He, it. he should have been. And he would agree with you, by the way. Uh, great debate. Thank you to my panel. Thank you very much, Catherine, for coming in. Please come back again, all of you. That was a really good debate. That's all for tonight. Uncensored? Keep it uncensored. Good night. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.